This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Hi, I'm going to be talking about ants in the Anthropocene, or as the ants probably would call it, ants in the Anthropocene. Uh, more about that later. But earlier we heard from Leslie who described the original evolutionary underpinnings for the human capacity to control nature. But clearly, the scale of modern human societies has vastly amplified our effects on the environment. So let me leap ahead to the end of this talk to spell out my conclusions in advance. And those are that human nations are not alone in their capacity for global conquest and environmental destruction. Certain ants with huge societies are doing the same thing right now. So what do we mean by a society? I have to define that first. Well, when people speak of something like the United States, I think they have a general idea in mind that I'm going to try to express here. A society is a group with a sharply defined membership that we fervently pledge allegiance to, fight for, and will sometimes die for. We expect a society to last through the generations, and that membership in it is involuntary. On top of that, we usually expect a society to have a territory. Well, with that in mind, I think we can say that societies have been focal points for human life throughout history and prehistory. Societies have transformed and generally enlarged over time, but we've always had them, whether they were hunter-gatherer bands in alliance or tribal groups of various kinds. And I think we can also say that certain kinds of animals have societies. So the mob of meerkats, for example, going right on down to the lowly ant, uh, where societies are defined in terms of a great overlap in generations. Ant colonies are not just a simple family. So much of what I have to say came out of a book I wrote as a visiting scholar in the Department of Human Evolutionary Biology at Harvard, The Human Swarm, How Our Societies Arise, Thrive, and Fall. And that book has a pedigree that traces back more than 10 years to an invited review in behavioral ecology on ants and dis discussing what is a society. And then one called Human Identity and the Evolution of Societies in Human Nature. And most recently, I did a brief review of some of the main points of those books and articles in the Proceedings of the American Philosophical Society. So you can look that up if you want to know more. But before I proceed, I'm going to speak briefly on some of the conclusions of the book and papers before talking about ants. And one of them is that it's a mistake to define societies as they often are in terms of being cooperative or cooperative groups. This overstates the importance of cooperation in distinguishing societies. I think we need to take the emphasis away from cooperative and move it to group and speak of social identities as a psychologist would. And I would recognize societies as a certain kind of group with a clear and enduring membership. And then we can ask when and how cooperation arises within a society or even between societies. That would be a good topic for another talk sometime. Well, to uh, understand where ants fit in, I'm going to talk about my realization that there are two ways to form a society that hadn't been separated before. The individual recognition societies, exemplified here by the chimpanzee, and anonymous societies. Well, 
most vertebrates have individual recognition societies, and they include things like packs of African wild dogs, cores of elephants, prides of lions, and troops of monkeys. And in those species, every member of a society has to recall and know every other member as an individual. And the memberships in those kinds of societies are at most about 200 and often quite a bit less. And I would argue that that in part probably reflects the mental effort of just keeping track of everybody. So how do you develop larger societies? What of herds of wildebeest, schools of fish, uh, flocks of birds? Well, those are not societies. They don't have definite memberships. In the terminology of a psychologist, there are no outgroups. These are aggregations where individuals can come and go. Sometimes it pays for them to stay in the groups for a long time, but they don't belong to those groups in any permanent sense. So a flock of bats is quite fabulous, and the bats are social, but the flocks are not a society. So to break that 200 population barrier, you need to do something in order to create what I call anonymous societies. And in those, members are distinguished from outsiders based on shared features. I generally call those markers. In the book, I talk about humans being walking billboards for our identities. You know, we have a lot of characteristics that define us as individuals. We have characteristics that define us as parts of different groups within the society and characteristics that set us off as a member of a certain societies. Um, So these kinds of societies, these anonymous societies, allow for strangers. And because of that, they can grow to much bigger sizes, including in humans, but also in ants and other social insects. They also have anonymous societies, and they do it in a vastly simplified manner. Uh, For ants, the national emblem is a scent. It's a series of hydrocarbon molecules on the ant surface. Have that scent and you're golden. Don't have it and you're in serious trouble. So based on those scents, those national emblems, ant societies can be all sizes and shapes. So you can have societies of just a few individuals like this colony living in a hollowed out twig on the forest floor in Costa Rica, just a handful of ants there. And you can have societies that are pretty huge. Uh, This one in French Guiana was the size of a tennis field. The nest is right there. Probably a million ants are down underground there. These are leafcutter ants, and they may have hundreds and thousands of chambers going down 20-plus feet into the ground in which they grow gardens that are quite massive in aggregate. We heard about mass agriculture earlier in this talk. These ants are actually raising a fully domesticated fungus. It lives only with the ants. One of the characteristics of large societies, and it's very common, is diagrammed here. This is an illustration from a book from the 1800s. The caption says these are ants at play. Unfortunately, this is not the case. This was only figured out much later. These ants are not playful. Ants never play. I talk about this in the American Journal of Play. Uh, The ants are actually killing each other. These are two colonies, two societies that have butted up against each other. Well, One of the topics that really interests me is described in a Scientific American article, Ants and the Art of War, and that is the connection between the forms of aggression that societies show and their populations. As societies get bigger, the form of aggression can change, and war is an option that's least risky in big societies. What is a war? Well, I think most people have in mind what I 
right down here. And that war is a concentrated engagement of group against group in which both sides risk wholesale destruction. Unfortunately, the idea of war has been watered down a lot in the popular press particularly. We speak of war often, even in anthropology, one, there are other words to describe other kinds of aggression. So I would say that things that are not wars, that have their own terms, are hunter-gatherer or chimpanzee cell raids and uh, lopsided massacres and things like that. And I think we'd do an immense service to the study of evolution of aggression if we made these distinctions. And the pattern I see is that war emerges in both ants and humans when societies grow in the high tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands. So this capacity for conquest and war brings with it a potential for a lot of environmental change and control. So large societies like army ants, a species that swarms like an army ant as shown here, can alter the species diversity of the forest floor in a variety of ants and change biodiversity. Well, warfare and the control of the environment, in the way we're interested in here, reaches a peak in very few ant species. These include the Argentine ant, the species I'm going to describe today. The Argentine ant controls most of Southern California. There are a couple million Argentine ants in the average backyard there. If there are ants in your kitchen, they're probably the Argentine ant. Now, you can take one of these Argentine ants from your kitchen in San Francisco, put it in a vial and drive it 500 miles down to the Mexican border where the mm, passport agents are checking people's credentials and the ant will still be fine. You can drop it off and it will simply merge and start doing its thing with the other ants that are there because it has the same national identity across this whole area, the same colony scent. But if you take that ant to an area east of San Diego called Escondido uh, and drop it beyond a borderline that you can't detect, but the ants treat with their lives, it will be dead within minutes. And here's the area. This upper middle class neighborhood has the largest battles ever recorded for any species. They're being studied by David Hallway at the University of California at San Diego. So just out of view beyond the edge of this street, is a borderline between two vast ant empires that extend for many miles. And when you look down, peel away the grass and look down, you will find just piles of dead ants extending in a line that can go for miles with a million ants dying every week along those battlefronts. And it turns out that all of Southern California is occupied by just four colonies called super colonies of the Argentine ant. The largest one extends from San Francisco to the Mexican border, as I described. Three others converge here in Escondido and have these battlefronts. And what's remarkable about this isn't only the level of aggression, but that those colonies can continue to expand indefinitely. And what makes these species extraordinary and like us, in a way, is that they're the only kinds of animals with societies capable of growing without bounds. As long as the environment is good, they can continue to grow until they meet a competing colony. So how do you get such hyper-aggressive ants? Well, it turns out the Argentine ant is from down in Argentina, northern Argentina, and it lives in the Paranal River drainage. 
And this particular area, shown in this uh, view from above, is the breeding ground for some of the most brutal invasive species on Earth. A half dozen of the worst invasive ants come from here. And here are two of them. Uh, they're fighting over a grasshopper. You see the grasshopper's head below them. The, below you see the Argentine ant, and it's biting the leg of a fire ant above. And the fire ant has extruded its sting with some poison at the tip of the sting off to the left. And uh, the fire ant, of course, has taken over the American South, and the Argentine ant has taken over California. So how have they come to be so lethal at battles in this area? Well, it turns out that this is a floodplain. And here the Argentine ants are eating a piranha that's floated up onto the shore. And what happens there is unique. Most parts of the world where two big colonies of any sort collide, there's something called the deer enemy effect that emerges over time. Initially, there's a high level of death, and then things settle down. A border is uh, settled on, and even a no man's land or no ant's land emerges between the armies, and there's relatively little mortality. But here, because the water is always rising and falling, the ants are forced to leave their battlefronts and go up the hills or up the trees until the waters go down again and start their battles each time from scratch. And it appears they've lost the deer enemy effect. They simply go at it full bore, killing each other constantly. In addition to that, they've become proficient at moving anywhere convenient at a moment's notice. So if a boat pulls up uh, down there in Argentina, the ants run up the gangplank immediately. Any place that they can live, whether it's on the top of a hill when the water rises or a boat is convenient to them. And they get transported around the world. So here's a picture from Monaco. And you can be sure those ships, even though they're privately owned boats, probably have plants with some Argentine ants living in them. And those Argentine ants can move up into those hills, which are perfect breeding grounds for this species. But what's happened is that the very first colony to arrive in Europe has expanded its range and controls the landscape utterly. So a thousand miles of European coastline is occupied by a single colony of Argentine ants, and it's the same colony that occupies most of Southern California. The col a colony that goes from San Francisco down to the Mexican border is the same colony as this one. Uh, they have the same identity. You can move the ants between them without a problem. That's, that same colony has taken over parts of Japan and other parts of the world. But a different colony has taken over, say, southern Africa. So the ants not only expand across the world, but their very colonies expand indefinitely across the world. So what does this all mean for assessing ants as contributors to the Anthropocene? Well, there are a number of things that these huge colonies do. They can displace and knock out native ants. Virtually all the native ants disappear where the Argentine ants have control. They can drive away pollinators and reduce the pollination for all kinds of native species, scaring away the bees just because they're all over the plants as well as the ground. They can eat seeds rather than disperse and bury them as the native harvester ants would do. So the seeds lie in the, the ground surface and dry out and die rather than being buried by the ants where they can sprout. And they harry animals like corn toads until they die. So this species and others are declining. In places like Hawaii, all kinds of invertebrates are on the decline. 
So science fiction would have us believe that the secrets uh, for ants taking over the world would be to have the ants themselves grow huge. So you have movies like Them in the 1950s of the giant ants mutated. But the actual secret of the ant success is to have their colonies grow huge. So here's an illustration by Peter Cooper. He's the guy who does Spy versus Spy for Mad Magazine. And he illustrated me as if I was composed of ants, because I think a lot about ants, probably that's what he had in mind. But let's imagine your body consisted of an equal weight of ants. It would take millions of ants to add up to the weight of your body. But now those ants can do things you can't do. They can spread out over a huge area, and they can survive things you can't. You can't kill an ant colony with a bullet to the head. You can step out on ants all day and they'll just keep coming. And the ants control the environment in a much finer level than you could. Every grain of sand is inspected by ants. In addition, the ants can thrive where humans would starve just because they can eke out resources that we can't find, like sugar and other things uh, in our kitchen under the, you know, under the sink. So those ants end up being very important in controlling the world. And the role, their role in the Anthropocene really is how they control the environment under our feet. And what's particularly impressive from the human perspective is those large ant societies achieve this control with absolute cooperation among their members. I talked about cooperation earlier. Humans deal with a lot of uh, social conflict in their societies. These huge colonies have none of that working against them. So thanks very much. I'm going to dedicate this talk to my mentor, E.O. Wilson, uh, and uh, who died last month. And uh, he, here he is at uh, the opening of a Smithsonian exhibit I did on ants. But my one proud moment was giving Ed an award from the Explorers Club uh, uh, which was a statue based on my photograph that I showed earlier. And I just have a tribute that I wrote about him. A lot of formal things have come out, but I put out something in Skeptic Magazines that presents Ed as the man. So I hope you can look at it. Thanks again. I'm Charlie Kennel, uh, the Director Emeritus of the Scripps Institution of Oceanography. And today I would like to share with you some thoughts about the dynamics of the Anthropocene era. The word Anthropocene conveys the global scale of humanity's power over the natural systems that determine the conditions for life on our planet. The concept Anthropocene implies the existence of an indirect but material causal relationship connecting what global society does to the resilience of large-scale environmental and ecological systems. Now, human communities have modified their local environment since well before the agricultural revolution. But now the new scale of humanity's power could enable this familiar form of agency to be exercised on a global scale. Should we learn in time how that agency can be aggregated and exercised, a long-feared tragedy of the global commons could be averted. Even the existence of that hope gives Anthropocene thought an ethical dimension. What global society chooses to do alters the planetary natural systems that sustain later generations.
Now, many experts agree that our planetary life support system is heading into crisis. What they cannot agree on is which crisis or which should have priority. Is our crisis social, the nexus of population growth, uneven economic development, social inequality? Is our crisis ecological, the unprecedented extinction rate and loss of biodiversity and nature services to society? Is our crisis climatic, climate change, its threats to infrastructure, prosperity, social stability? Or finally, in today's world, especially today, is our crisis one of public health, disease, its threats to well-being, human survivability? Now, these social, ecological, climate, and public health threats have three aspects in common. Each is a consequence of collective human behavior. Each achieved global scale during the great acceleration in the growth of world population and prosperity after World War II. Each is documented by trends in data that extrapolate separately to its own potentially mortal crisis. The experts might have a common ethical orientation, but they have divided intellectual loyalties, which will have even more serious consequences downstream than it does now. Were the drivers of social, ecological, climatic, and health threats, were they independent, working separately as we do now to counter them would be effective. But all four are presenting simultaneously and are beginning to interact. The risk convergence implied by this interaction would lead to a comprehensive crisis should all threats interact so strongly that one crisis cannot be solved without uh, solving all. A likely time for this crisis of the Anthropocene is at the culmination of the demographic transition that we are currently in the midst of. What the experts fear is a concatenation of converging Malthusian apocalypses. The primal fear, first articulated by Thomas Malthus in 1798, was that the planet's capacity to produce food will inevitably be outstripped by population growth. The power of population, Malthus once said, is so superior to the power in the earth to produce subsistence for man that premature death must in some shape or other visit the human race. Now, agricultural science has so far headed off the food security apocalypse, but economists, demographers, naturalists, ecologists, climate scientists, and many others have articulated sophisticated versions of his apocalypse. And a few observers have asked why they are presenting all at once. And that's what I will discuss next. One influential 1968 study of this convergence threat, Garrett Hardin's Tragedy of the Commons, blamed human psychology. Individuals rationally pursuing their self-interest work against the common good when they feel no restraint on the exploitation of a public resource. Thus, polluting rivers, oceans, the atmosphere, cost to perpetrators virtually nothing, yet exact significant costs on the biosphere. Another influential early report, The Limits to Growth by the Club of Rome in 1972, blamed headlong economic growth. Its chair, automobile uh, chairman Fiat 
Vice President Aurelie Pecce, wrote by way of introduction, the common enemy of humanity is man. In searching for a new enemy to unite us, we came up with the idea that pollution, global warming, water shortages, famine, and the like would fit the bell. The real enemy, then, is humanity itself. Thus, the term anthro enters Anthropocene. In 2009, the Stockholm Resilience Center proposed a planetary boundary framework for estimating how close we are to the full-blown Anthropocene convergent crisis. It identified nine boundaries where complex eco-environmental systems cross thresholds, tipping points, they call them, where nonlinear functional irreversible changes in biophysical systems are triggered. And Will Steffen and his group in 2015 estimated that four of such nine planetary boundaries have already been crossed uh, at this moment. In this sense, then, we are about halfway through to the Anthropocene Convergent Crisis. Thus, in the past two generations, the principal international threat to world civilization has morphed from world military catastrophe to world eco-environmental catastrophe. Now, international diplomacy's response to the notion that global society is driving the planet towards the Malthusian apocalypse was generated by the World Commission on Economic Development, chaired by Harlem Brutland, the then president of Norway in 1987. The idea was sustainable development. And they, the World Commission developed such a, a, a deft definition that nobody else has used a different one ever since, even though uh, it is almost a tautology. Sustainable development is development that meets the needs of the present without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their own needs. Now, the interesting thing is that the WCED statement defines implicitly the timescale for meaningful global action, timescale that we can make a change, to be one human generation. It takes a time for generations to change uh, in order to affect change. The UN's Sustainable Development Goals of 2016 and the earlier Millennium Development Goals of 2000 articulated what sustainable behavior is, but they leave achieving a sustainable global society, actually walking the talk, for another day. The renewed SDGs, Sustainable Development Goals, still do not illuminate what institutions, laws, policies, practices, technologies, and resources are required to create and sustain a socially just global society in a relationship with this planetary environment that is resilient to climate change. In short, the Sustainable Development Goals do not structure an action agenda. The last report on this line that I would like to cite was done by the U.S. National Academy of Sciences in 1999, and it was entitled Our Common Journey. As we've observed, sustainable development goals say little about where knowledge and innovation are needed. In 1999, the Academy took up this issue, and its study explicitly recognized in its opening remarks that the world is in the midst of a demographic transition. This is what they said. 
We're in the midst of a transition to a world in which human populations are more crowded, more consuming, more connected, and more diverse than at any time in our history. And here's the thing. Current projections envisage population leveling off at about 10 to 11 billion by 2100. Now, the Academy then asked a question never before put in this form. Can the transition to a stable human population also be a transition to sustainability in which the people living on Earth over the next half century meet their needs while nurturing and restoring the planet's life support systems? Now, they spent 200 more pages articulating the proposition that how we cope with the demographic transition we're in sets new initial conditions for the long future. Even a small 10% engineered reduction of maximum global population would have a disproportionate impact on sustainability, since the greatest ecological environmental stresses come when the population reaches maximum. The eminent biologist E.O. Wilson, whom we just lost last year, echoed that sentiment. Those species and ecosystems that survive the coming ecological bottleneck set new initial conditions for the long future of the biosphere. So how are we doing? Well, in my view, I see a world that is a mosaic of societies in transition. The improvement in prosperity and social well-being that drives demographic transitions, which is a, a shift from a high birth rate, low life expectancy to a low birth rate, high life expectancy society, that shift is about halfway complete. With countries and communities in different stages living side by side, modern communications make it easy to see economic inequality and cultural divide between countries and within countries. Moreover, depending on their focus, experts can entertain different views about the state of the planet and not be wrong. Social scientists, uh, exemplified by the French economist Thomas Piketty and uh, Harvard psychologist Steven Pinker, can document major increases in life expectancy, world prosperity, and societal, societal well-being in the last two generations. But during the same two generations, natural scientists have documented evidence that the planet is bearing more of the costs of population growth and social advance than its natural processes can sustain. This unequal assignment of, of the costs of the social advance underlying the demographic transition is leading to a multidimensional crisis and argues that a grand rebalancing is in order. I think our best hope is to exercise our planetary agency. Anthropocene thought has an intergenerational rhythm what each generation thinks sets the next stage for what the next generation does, and what that generation does shapes the planet its children will live on. In short, how we think as a planet is what our children get as a planet. And I think our past, perhaps only choice, is to exercise the agency that advances civilization and technology has provided us. What we did unthinkingly in the past generation, we can now undo in the next two. But first, we've got to decide what kind of society we want to live in and what kind of planet we want to live on. All in all, 
we're proceeding towards the Anthropocene crisis without the assurance that our demographic transition can also be the transition to the sustainability that was hoped for in our common journey. Indeed, the geographer Jared Diamond has recounted multiple sustainability failures amongst small-scale historical societies. So, contemporary science is silent on whether a collectively managed sustainability transition is a natural step in the evolution of intelligence-bearing planets, for we know of no other such planet. Thank you very much. Scientists are rotten forecasters, almost as bad as economists. But I've nonetheless written a book rather potentially entitled On the Future. Here it is. But my forecast today will be very tentative, especially in front of an audience where there are better experts than me. The book's theme is this. Our Earth has existed for 45 million centuries, but this century is special. It's the first when the main threats are induced by one species, humans. We're deep in the Anthropocene. We have an ever heavier collective footprint. We're empowered by ever more powerful technologies. These could be hugely beneficial, but if misapplied, they could trigger catastrophic setbacks to civilization. And such events would be global. We're so interconnected that no continent would be unscathed. It's an ethical indictment of wealthy nations that the gap between the actual state of the world and the way it could be is widening and not narrowing. COVID-19 has been a wake-up call. It has shown that our increasingly interconnected civilization is vulnerable, but also that well-directed science can be its salvation. So let me highlight a few trends. The world's getting more crowded. 50 years ago, its population was below 4 billion. It's now about 7.8 billion. But doom-laden forecasts 50 years ago by the Club of Rome proved off the mark. Food production has kept pace with rising population. Regional famines still occur and there's widespread undernourishment. But these evils stem from conflict and maldistribution, not overall scarcity. The number of births per year is now below replacement level in most countries. Nonetheless, world population is forecast to rise to about 9 billion by 2050. That's partly because most people in the developing world are young. They're yet to have children and they live longer. And it's partly because the demographic transition to low fertility hasn't reached some of the poorest countries. Avoiding mass hunger will require further improved agriculture, low-till, water-conserving and GM crops. And maybe also dietary innovations, converting insects and maggots, highly nutritious and rich in protein, into palatable food and eating artificial meat and not beef. To quote Mahatma Gandhi, there'll be enough for everyone's need, but not for everyone's greed. Optimists say that each extra mouth brings two hands and a brain. But 
the geopolitical stresses, especially if north-south inequalities aren't reduced, are surely worrying. Those in poor countries now know by the internet what they're missing. They're not fatalistic about the injustice of their fate. Indeed, I think the prosperous nations of the North, especially those in Europe, need to emulate what the US did for Europe after World War II and establish a mega Marshall Plan to help Africa close the prosperity gap with the North. And another thing, if humanity's collective impact on climate and resources pushes too hard, the resultant ecological shock could wipe out many species. We'd be destroying the book of life before we've read it. Already, the biomass in humans, cows and domestic animals is 20 times that in wild mammals. And chickens and turkeys outweigh all the world's wild birds. Biodiversity is crucial to human well-being. We're clearly so harmed if fish stocks dwindle to extinction. There are plants in the rainforest whose gene pool might be useful to us. And insects are crucial for the food chain and fertilization. But many of us feel that preserving the richness of our biosphere has value in its own right. To quote E.O. Wilson, mass extinction is the sin that future generations will least forgive us for. And to avoid massive encroachment on natural habitats, sustainably intensive, high-tech agriculture must be a goal. Moreover, these environmental stresses are aggravated by anthropogenic climate change. And as we've heard, under business as usual scenarios, we can't rule out later in this century really catastrophic warming and tipping points triggering multi-century trends like the melting of Greenland's ice cap. The case for urgent action is compelling, but politicians won't prioritize long-term decisions unless there's public clamor from their voters. Scientists must enhance this clamor by engaging with NGOs, by blogging and journalism, and enlisting charismatic individuals and the media to amplify their voice. Prominent recently among these has been a disparate quartet. Pope Francis, our secular Pope David Attenborough, Bill Gates and Greta Thornburg. They've collectively had a huge effect. Because it's hard to persuade the public to make sacrifices for the prime benefit of people in distant parts of the world decades in the future. But there's one win-win policy. Accelerating development of clean energy systems, carbon-free energy production, cheap storage and efficient distribution should be another global imperative. And it's hard to conceive more inspiring goals for young scientists and engineers than to ensure sustainable food and energy supplies worldwide in the coming decades. We should be evangelists for new technology. Without it, the world can't sustain an expanded and more demanding population. But technology has its downsides too. Indeed, many of us are anxious that it's advancing so fast that we may not properly cope with it and that we'll have a bumpy ride through the century. Advances in microbiology, 
diagnostics, vaccines and antibiotics of the prospects of containing natural pandemics. But the same research raises, and is my number one fear, the prospect of engineered pandemics. For instance, so-called gain-of-function experiments can make viruses more virulent and more transmissible. And the new CRISPR-Cas9 technique for gene editing is hugely promising, but there are ethical concerns and worries about possible runaway consequences of gene drive programs to wipe out species. So regulation is needed, but I'd worry that whatever regulations are imposed can't be enforced worldwide, any more than the drug laws can or the tax laws. Whatever can be done will be done by someone somewhere. And that's a nightmare. Whereas an atomic bomb can't be built without large special purpose facilities, biotech involves small scale dual use equipment. Indeed, biohacking is burgeoning even as a hobby and competitive game. The global village will have its village idiots and they'll have global range. And the rising empowerment of tech savvy groups or even individuals by biotech and by cybertech as well will pose an intractable challenge to governments and aggravate the tension between three things we want to preserve, freedom, privacy, and security. For many of us, these bio and cyber advances are therefore scary portents of things to come. And these concerns are fairly near term within the next 10 or 15 years. What about 2050 and beyond? On a bio front, you might then expect two things. First, a better understanding of the combination of genes that determine key human characteristics and the ability to synthesize genomes that match these features. The physicist Freeman Dyson conjectured a time when children will be able to design and create new organisms, just as routinely as his generation played with chemistry sets. Well, if it becomes possible to, as it were, play God on a kitchen table, our ecology and even our species may long hope, not long, survive unscathed. So let's hope Freeman Dyson's idea does stay science fiction. But what about another SF concept, immortality? Research on aging is being seriously prioritized. Will the benefits be incremental or is aging a disease that can be cured? We've heard recently of the proposed Altos labs to address this. They're funded by billionaires, people who when they were young, aspired to be rich, and now being rich, they want to be young again. Dramatic life extension would claim to be a real wild card in population projections with huge social ramifications. But it may happen along with human enhancement in other forms. And it's at least surely on the cards that human beings, their mentality and their physique may become malleable through the deployments of genetic modification and cyborg technology. Moreover, this future evolution, a kind of secular intelligent design, would take only centuries, in contrast to the thousands of centuries needed for Darwinian evolution of a new species. This is a game changer. 
when we admire the literature and artifacts that have survived from antiquity, we feel an affinity across a time gulf of thousands of years with those ancient artists and their civilizations. But we can have zero confidence that the dominant intelligences a few centuries from now will have any emotional resonance with us, even though they may have an algorithmic understanding of how we behaved. And let me inject an astronomical perspective on timescales. It's taken more than three billion years for us to evolve via Darwinian selection from the very first life. But the sun's less than halfway through its life and the cosmos may go on forever. So we humans could be nearer the beginning than the end of the emergence of complexity, which is accelerating. We're not the top of the tree and we can have no conception of this vast cosmic future. And this speculation leads to another technology, space. During this century, the whole solar system will be explored by swarms of miniaturized probes. And the next step will be deployments in space or on the moon of robotic fabricators, which could build large structures, for instance, giant solar energy collectors. And what about human spaceflight? The practical case for this gets ever weaker with each advance in robots and miniaturization. If I was an American, I wouldn't want any of my tax money to go towards it. I think human spaceflight's future lies with privately funded adventurers prepared to participate in a cut price program far riskier than Western nations could impose on publicly supported civilians. Elon Musk's SpaceX and Jeff Bezos's Blue Origin are already offering orbital flights to paying customers. But they should avoid the phrase space tourism. It lulls people into believing that these ventures are routine and low risk. They must be sold as dangerous sports or intrepid exploration. But by 2100, courageous thrill seekers may have established bases independent from the Earth, probably on Mars. And Musk himself, now age 50, says he wants to die on Mars, but not on impact. But don't ever expect mass migration from Earth. No way in our solar system offers an environment even as clement as the Antarctic or the ocean bed. And here I disagree with Musk and my late colleague Stephen Hawking. It's a dangerous delusion to think that space offers an escape from Earth's problems. Dealing with climate change on Earth is a doddle compared to terraforming Mars. There's no planet B for ordinary risk-averse people. We must cherish our earthly home. Nonetheless, we should cheer on those brave space adventurers because they have a pivotal role in spearheading the post-human future and determining what happens in the 22nd century and far beyond. And let me explain why. These guys will be ill-adapted to their new habitat on Mars. So they'll have a more compelling incentive than those of us on Earth to redesign themselves. They'll harness the super powerful genetic and cyborg technologies that will be developed in coming decades. These techniques will, one hopes, be constrained here on Earth on prudential and ethical grounds. 
But the settlers on Mars will be beyond the clutches of the regulators. And we should surely wish them good luck in modifying their progeny to adapt to hostile environments. So as these spacefaring adventurers, not those of us come to be adapted to life on Earth, who will spearhead a post-human era on Mars and far beyond. One of the most exciting developments in astronomy has been the realization that most stars in the sky are orbited by residues of planets. There are many millions of planets like the Earth spread through the galaxy. Do any of them harbor life? We may get the first clues from the James Webb telescope. It's powerful enough to detect the nearest exoplanets as faint dots and to take spectra that would reveal if any of them are covered with vegetation. But to get an actual resolved image, not just a point of light, would require a vast interferometer in space. But that's a realistic goal in the next half century. Indeed, I say in my book that we should aim to achieve such an image of another Earth by 2068. I choose that year because it's a centenary of the famous Earthrise image taken by Ed Anders of the Earth while orbiting the moon, which became iconic for environmentalists. So to conclude, a cosmic perspective can actually strengthen our concerns about what happens here and now because it will offer a vision of just how prolonged and prodigious life's future could be. In the aeons that lie ahead, even more marvelous diversity could emerge. The unfolding of intelligence and complexity could still be far from its culmination. We're all surely mindful of the heritage we've inherited from our forebears. If our generation are negligent stewards, poor ancestors as it were, we shall not only jeopardize the welfare of our children and grandchildren, but risk foreclosing vast future potentialities. So we need to think globally. We need to think national, rationally. We need to think long-term, empowered by 21st century technology, but guided by values that science alone can't provide. So thank you for listening. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.